Welcome to Morbid Symptoms, the podcast of the Time of Monsters newsletter. Um, in our last episode, uh, the thrilling last episode, I um, we ended by talking about uh, the embarrassing ambassador, Michael McFall, uh, and uh, some of the uh, things that he had said online uh, about how there were no innocent Russians and the uh, troubles that caused. And my guest, David Cleon, um, and I wanted to talk more about that, especially since David had written um, an excellent piece in The Baffler a few years ago. That was a, a review of uh, McFall's autobiography, but also really a profile of him and an explanation of why um, this sort of Twitter embarrassment is, you know, something that happens to him often. He is uh, McFall is someone who's both very successful. Um, he, he's been an ambassador to uh, a major foreign power, Russia, uh, and he teaches at um, uh, a top school, Stanford. Uh, but he also keeps um, getting to accidents. Uh, in some ways, is he McFall or is he Magoo, the Mr. Magoo of American uh, diplomacy? Uh, and I, so I thought there was a lot more to say. And an amazing thing happened after we posted uh, that podcast promising more uh, Michael McFall content, which is that he continues to embarrass himself uh, in an even bigger way than before, that he went on the um, Rachel Maddow show and he said, um, uh, made a comparison between Vladimir Putin and Adolf Hitler that was, to put it mildly, uh, highly inappropriate. Uh, uh, what McFall said was one difference between Putin and Hitler is that Hitler didn't kill ethnic Germans, German-speaking people. Putin slaughtered the very people he said he has come to liberate. Uh, you know, to quote the immortal words of Drill, you know, you don't have to hand it to Adolf Hitler. You don't have to uh, say that. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's almost tedious at this point to make the sort of pedantic historical point, but Hitler certainly killed a lot of German people. Um, and one should not say that German Jews were not German. I mean, that, that is the buying to the logic of uh, uh, Nazi um, uh, nationalism, uh, the idea that there's a, a Jewish people that is separate from a German people. But in addition to the many German Jews that he killed, Hitler also killed uh, German communists, German socialists, uh, German trade union workers, German um, Roma, German disabled people, German uh, gays and lesbians. Uh, it's just like- uh, yeah, and, and, and I didn't hear this point made often, but um, as I think about it, you know, there's also a sort of like Putin is bringing ruin on Russia right now, like all the economic sanctions and everything, you know, the, the, the collapse of Russian society is, is on him, which is something I agree with without getting into a whole debate about, you know, what sanctions are appropriate and not. But, you know, Hitler also brought great ruination on Germans as he ultimately lost the war and their cities were firebombed. And not least on, um, and, and it doesn't often get talked about, but I actually did some of my undergraduate thesis research on this, on the um, the Germans of Eastern Europe, who were you know who uh, who he basically started the war in the name of in a way that is somewhat analogous to to what Putin has done in, in Ukraine and elsewhere. I mean, you know, he, um, he you know the, the ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia and Poland were were kind of the the casus belli for for Germany's expansion um, and and for what eventually started World War II. And uh, you know, in the end, they were expelled. They were expelled oh, from yeah. Czechoslovakia, from Poland, from Romania, from 
what kind of expert, which became Kaliningrad under, under Russia, and millions and millions of Germans were expelled from Eastern Europe as a result of Hitler's actions where they had been living for centuries. And um, so, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a very, I mean, what's weird is, I don't actually think it's that inappropriate at this point to draw some parallels as I just yeah. did between Putin and Hitler. There are some, I mean, we, I think we've talked about this before, but there are some plausible parallels you can draw, uh, certainly on the question of, of ethnic revanchism and irredentism. Uh, what is insane is saying that Putin is worse than Hitler. I mean, it's pretty hard to meet the worse than Hitler standard. It's yeah. arguable that anyone ever has, and McFall eventually deleted and apologized and said that, you know, that, that Hitler is incomparable. But I want to note that another um, uh, Russia expert, Anders Ostland, uh, who, uh, you know, is kind of of the same cohort and era as, as McFall and, and is taught at Georgetown and other places, got into McFall's mentions and said, no, I don't think you should apologize. I think, uh, I think Putin actually is worse than Hitler. And I'm paraphrasing a little here because he deleted all these tweets after people dogpiled him too. But he said, you know, Putin is is using chemical weapons in, in Syria. Like Hitler never used chemical weapons. And people were like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> um, have you have you heard of Zyklon B? Have you heard of you know Auschwitz? And and Asland had to backpedal and he had to be like, look, uh, um, I meant he never used them on the battlefield, which to be honest, I'm not totally sure is true either. Um, yeah, but... no, I it, it seems uh, um, Hitler, I, I mean. All these things are, are very ridiculous. And I'm very glad you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like Hitler's wars led to kind of like an ethnic cleansing of Germans from um, the uh, the East and into Germany. And I'll just end on uh, maybe a final point about all this, which is that we know in the last days in the bunker that Hitler uh, insisted that he wanted Germany, the German nation itself which he blamed for the loss of the war, which he said, the German people have failed me. They have failed their Fuhrer. And he wanted like as much destruction of Germany itself as possible. Uh, so, he, he, he could have surrendered. Everything about World War II feels so inevitable in hindsight. Like we're just sort of taught it as this epic struggle, but like lots of things in any war and certainly a war on that scale are contingent and millions of Germans could have been spared if the Nazis had just surrendered earlier, but that was obviously never in the cards. It's never in the cards because he believed that his greatness as the Fuhrer, as the leader was paramount rather than the, you know, the fate of the German people. Um, and as my friend, the cartoonist Seth once said, Hitler, what an asshole. Uh, and I, think, I think that should be- Yeah, it's, it's hard to- it's hard. People will sometimes say, like, you know, well, Hitler, Hitler killed six million, but Stalin killed more than that. And while well, Stalin killed millions, like, it's worth noting, Hitler killed a lot more than six million people. He killed six million Jews. Um, but you know, he also, he also, in addition to all the other ethnic groups he killed, which probably gets you to, and 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 you know, sexual minorities and so on, which probably gets you up to eleven million. There's also the fact that he started World War Two, and which you know, like killed, I mean, 27 million people in the Soviet Union alone, some of them are also Holocaust victims. But, um, you know, I mean, the, 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 there's really, it's really hard to, I make, I'm going out on a really bold limb here and saying, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate just how much death and destruction is on Hitler's hands. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So this it's, is, this is it's very dangerous to compare anyone, including Vladimir Putin, who has shown 
some legitimate shades of Hitler recently. But but it, what's crazy is not that people are saying that. It's that it's that Michael McFall and Anders Asland, like truly like credential, reputable inner circle Russia experts um, who go on you know TV and stuff are saying stuff like this. Uh, you know that that uh, Michael McFall said this on Rachel Maddow's show, and then Maddow. Maddow's people thought it was a good idea to tweet it out as a as a clip, you know, like that, is, which they then deleted and apologized for. That is um, where this gets really wild, and I think why it justifies an episode. That's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I think this is a good way to step. I mean, so, so we've dealt with the initial Twitter controversy, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll say one final thing about that, which is that the um, he, he um, uh, it is true that. Um, uh, there was a deletion and an apology. Um, I have to say the apology uh, was, in my, my my point of view, very badly framed because um, what Michael McFall says was, well, I apologize for breaking this taboo subject uh, of comparing someone to Hitler. And uh, that's not the problem. As you said, like they're, they're legitimate comparisons to Hitler. The problem was that he compared to Hitler in a false way that ended up whitewashing Hitler's crime. I mean, the... the but, well, he he yeah. bought Hitler's racial logic in a way, which is not an uncommon thing for people in the West to do. I think in in ways that that you know are probably well-meaning but ignorant. I mean, you know, he he basically accepted the framing that German Jews are not Germans, and and therefore, uh, you know, that that when Hitler, you know, implemented the Nuremberg laws and and everything that. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he was really persecuting a, a racial minority and, and not his quote unquote own people. And, you know, I mean, I get that. That's, that is kind of a common framing in a lot of ways. Like I understand that, I mean, plenty of people will describe like what the Germans did to Jews as if Jews couldn't be Germans. And, and mm -hmm. in, in some ways it's like, in some ways that's a Zionist framing too, right? Like this, this notion that, um, that, that Jews are not assimilable in Europe, that you can't actually be a German if you're a Jew, is, is not just something that Nazis or Michael McFaul say, it's something that plenty of Jews argue too. Um, and, you know, it's a whole can of worms. Uh, so I don't, we can only pick on McFaul so much for getting that one wrong, I think, because it's, it's, it's truly not like Hitler is the only person to argue that. But, you know, it's still a, a very toxic argument and one that I think uh, we, we should be very wary of making. Yeah, and I, I would actually also insist that maybe a particularly toxic one at this moment, because I mean, I mean, in this conflict, one sees in the figure of Zelensky, someone who like, you know, vindicates the, uh, the opposite truth, which is that one can be Ukrainian and Jewish. Yeah, uh, and, and, not, and not just Zelensky. I mean, it's been fascinating to watch Ukraine, a country where, you know, a very large proportion of the pop, where, where almost everyone speaks Russian, except in the West, they might refuse to. Um, and where a very, very large percentage of the population is bilingual, especially in the largest cities and in the capital. Um, you know, Putin invaded, I think, on the premise that if you're a primarily Russian speaking person, in this country that has Ukrainian nationalists pushing for more Ukrainian language, you know, and less Russian language, um, that you are a you are a Russian and you are you know being persecuted by by the Ukrainian fascist government. And he's sold that. Now, that's not just Putin's line. I mean, there's a lot of people in the Western left and right who've accepted that argument at face value. And what we're seeing in not just Ukraine staunch resistance, but like where is the war mostly happening? It's happening around 
largely Russian-speaking cities like Kiev and Kharkiv, um, and obviously in, in the Donbass. Um, and, and, and the resistance that they're facing is from Russian-speaking people. I mean, Zelensky, in addition to being Jewish, like many Ukrainian Jews, Russian is his first language. And, um, and, and I mean, you know, what's actually been really fascinating to see is, you, you know, the nature of war in the social media era is that people are constantly posting, you know, TikToks and, and short videos they filmed on Twitter, just regular people. And there are lots where you'll see like the shelling of a major Ukrainian city and you'll hear someone narrating with just a stream of profanities and you know curses of Putin and the Russians. And very, most of the time in most of the videos I've seen, they're doing that in Russian. Like that's the language they're cursing in because that's the language they speak, which is all just to say like, just because you speak a particular language or are of a particular religion doesn't mean you're not part of the, na the national body politic of the country you live in, which you know you think would be obvious to um, you know an, an American Jew like me or an, uh, a South Asian Canadian like yourself. I mean that that you know that there's not one pure uh, folk in either of our countries, but it's less obvious to people when they talk about Europe sometimes. I think. Yeah, no, that's right. There's a kind of common sense, which is a false common sense of thinking of, of nations as these uh, uh, unitary identities. Uh, but but I think that and that I think is a good way to segue into sort of Michael McFall. And um, I want to emphasize, you know, like we have spent a little bit of time going over his embarrassing tweets because they are very embarrassing and very bad and, and deserve criticism. Uh, but the embarrassing tweets are symptoms rather than the disease. Uh, and that there's this larger figure, Michael McFall, and it's not just Michael McFall, as you indicated. Um, there's a sort of cohort or generation of um, American foreign policymakers and diplomats um, that McFall belongs to. People who um, were present at the creation, present during the 1980s in the last days of the Soviet Union, uh, and then had a huge formative impact on Russia and the world as the sort of American overlords of the remaking of Russia, um, and who uh, are now finding that the world that they made has turned out very different than what they expected, and frankly are losing their minds. And I think in that sense, these tweets from him and from some other people are symptomatics of um, a kind of cognitive dissonance or a, a breakdown of mental reality. Uh, so uh, we, I think it's very imperative to think about McFall as this kind of historical figure and why I'm very happy to have you back on here to talk about in this long promised episode to talk about uh, uh, McFall because you wrote, as I mentioned before, and I'll link to it um, on, the, on the post that comes with this um, podcast, you wrote a great piece in The Baffler that was a profile of McFall. So, so let, let's step back and say, well, you know, who is Michael McFall? Who is this Mr. Magoo of American Twitter diplomacy? Yeah, so, I mean, even when I wrote that piece in 2018, I had been following McFall for years. Um, and I've, um, it might be, a, I've met him. I mean, I haven't met him in like a We Got Coffee since, but I've, I've been to two events that he did. And in one of them, I like shook his hand and I think he signed my book afterwards. So, you know, I have that. And I asked a question in one of them, which I think if one goes digging on the internet, one can find footage of me asking McFall a question in like 
I don't know, 2014 or something. Um, so, you know, I've encountered him. I mean, he, to, to people who studied Russia in the former Soviet Union, he's a major name. Um, and uh, people have made fun of him for a long time. Um, and I, I want to emphasize with the Twitter thing, um, because he's been very active on Twitter for, I think, a decade now, give or take. I mean, he, he's, he's a big time Twitter guy. He tweets constantly. Um, and uh, he lives on the West Coast. Uh, just just uh, before you continue, I, I have to say that neither you nor I are in any position to criticize. No, no. We're both big time Twitter guys. And in fact, we should, as we've, I think, said with Neera Tandon before, express solidarity with a fellow poster. That's but I do, want, I do want to emphasize, since we're both big time Twitter guys and we both, like so many other people who tweeted a lot, had our share of bad and embarrassing tweets and tweets we've been dogpiled for. We're familiar with the phenomenon, but I want to emphasize that and say, it's not just that in you know millions of tweets, McFall occasionally has like some poor word choice or, or, or a misfire on something. No, like if you follow the guy and he's the kind of person I follow where Twitter's algorithm like knows I'm interested. So I see like all of his tweets every night He's usually very active late night East Coast time, which is you know a few hours earlier in in, in the Bay Area where he lives. But um, so so you know often like if I'm up at like midnight, his his tweets will play a large role in my feed. And um, this is a guy who I would say his foot is in his mouth most of the time. Like sometimes he'll say something unobjectionable and banal, but like really, if you watch his tweets like every night. For, for years, like the, he didn't just like lose it recently, nor is he just like occasionally off. Like there's a whole bizarre worldview that's expressed with the guy um, where he, uh, he will get into it with anyone, including like two follower number screen bot accounts um, that are clearly trolling him. And periodically he'll say, I'm never engaging with bot accounts again. I know that it's just Russian disinfo, but then he keeps doing it. He never learns. Uh, which is a real metaphor for for a lot of things. Um, he, you know, any random person can correct him on like a basic factual point. And sometimes if if they're just, if they have him dead to rights, he'll admit it and delete. But it's sort of like, dude, you're a Stanford political scientist and Obama's top Russian ad advisor and the former ambassador to Moscow. Like, why don't you know things? Why aren't you like informed about basic things about like how the world works? A, a favorite rhetorical trick of his is to say like, um, you know, I don't understand why, like for instance, in, in the buildup to the war, and I say this with, I don't want anyone to mistake this for me apologizing for Putin or, or anything he's done. I, that's not me, I hope that's clear by now. But you know, in the build, but there are legitimate debates as we've talked about before to be had about NATO expansion in the past. I don't think it, it was the immediate provocation for this insane war, but it, it's a long thing. So that's just to say that in the months leading up to the war, McFaul would sometimes tweet things like, you know, I don't understand why, why you know, Russia, a great and powerful nation, it feels threatened by tiny Estonia joining NATO. Someone please explain it to me. And he that's a move he loves to make. He loves to be someone explain or show your evidence or, you know, persuade me. And, um, and it's like, well, I don't know, man, like NATO is, 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 is a military alliance headed by the United States, the most powerful country in the world. And it's basically, and, and Estonia is, you know, like a, a few hours drive from St. Petersburg and not all that far in the grand scheme of things from Moscow. I, I can see why 
Russians, and not only Putin might be a little bit concerned about the Baltic states joining a, a do or die military alliance with the United States. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's a completely irrational thing for them to feel. But more to the point, I don't understand why that would be a hard thing for, again, <laughs> a tenured Stanford expert who has, as he never hesitates to point out, been in the room with Putin repeatedly and like talked about high level diplomatic issues with Putin. How do you not under what? Why are you asking randos on Twitter to explain that to you? Um, you asked who he is, where he came from. And the reason I went to Twitter first is because I think it's just very revealing about his 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 mindset um, about and about how far you can get in the American like high meritocratic elite um, while apparently not understanding a goddamn thing. Um, so let's flashback. Who is Michael McFall? Um, Michael McFall is, um, he must be in his fifties or something right now, I'm guessing. Um, and he, he's born in a small town in Montana, uh, raised there. He's like, he likes to allude to this often to his kind of aw shucks, small town American upbringing. Um, although actually Julia Yaffe did an interesting profile of him, I think when he was the U.S. ambassador, um, that I read the other day, I probably read at the time, but um, where it sounds like he actually, for all he kind of likes to romanticize his small town Montana youth, it sounds like he was actually kind of a nerd in a very jock town and, and it was actually kind of rough for him, which is something I can sympathize with, not that I grew yeah. up in a jock town, but I get it. Um, but he, he went to Stanford, um, he, uh, you know, I think he, I, I gather he grew up very middle class and, and going to Stanford was like, you know, eye opening to the American elite for him. He was, you know, kind of left leaning. Um, he, he got really into the Soviet Union um, in the 80s. Uh, initially, his big thing was kind of anti-war, anti-nuclear war stuff, which is kind of ironic if you look at his recent tweets. But, you know, he was a peacenik guy, a, a, a disarmament guy in the 80s he he went and and yeah i just think of a timeline like so he was born in 63 so it's like the early 80s and this is like the sort of high tide of the second cold war yeah evil empire and the genuine fear of nuclear war which was totally legitimate i mean i think now we have the archives there seems to have been a few incidences in the early 80s where like you know the world came damn close to like nuclear war yeah my my friend Nate Jones, who I'll, I'll make sure listens to this, uh, who works at the Washington Post and worked at the National Security Archive for a long time in Washington, which is a great organization, um, is like, I, I think it's fair to say a leading expert on the Able Archer 83 scare, which, uh, you know, came about as close as anything besides the Cuban Missile Crisis to destroying the world. And we basically got lucky. Um, and uh, and that, that came out of the height of Reagan's you know, kind of end to detente, you know, the neocons um, first high watermark before they came back with the Iraq war was, uh, you know, joining the Reagan administration as he rejected detente in favor of, of rearmament and, and, and a kind of revived Cold War. And McFall, I mean, to his credit as a young idealist is, is of the generation that of liberals in that time who were like, this is really bad, this is insane, we need to understand the Soviets. So, you know, or if you've ever heard the the Sting song Russians, where he he sort of you know it's kind of written in that spirit, you know, where we. Uh, 
<laughs> the, uh, and yeah, no, I mean, I don't I mean, like one should not be ironic or dismissive of it because it was an actual mo historical moment. Uh, and I, I have to say McFaul's like response, I, I think is was the right response and was the response I, you know, be, being uh, a few years younger than they had at uh, the time of like, you know, believing um, the nuclear war was a paramount danger. Uh, yeah. And, and, and uh, the, uh, 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 and so, so it would make sense that an idealistic liberal person at the time in the early eighties would become interested in Russia. Um, I have friends um, who went through the, the same experience, uh, uh, older friends who are of McFaul's age. Yeah. Um, you know, like learn Russian is a very common thing at that point. Um, and, and, and then, uh, um, so uh, where does that take him? Well, I mean, also, I'll put my own cards on the table here. I mean, I'm about two decades younger than McFall, but, um, you know, I also, like, went to college, studied Russian, uh, studied abroad in, in Russia, you know, fell in love with the country with all its faults in a lot of ways, and was very, you know, this was, when I went there the first time, it was like Bush's second term. And, um, you know, I was very concerned that there not be escalation between Russia and the US and McFall, uh, you know, would then emerge in my 20s as someone trying to reset relations. We'll get to that. But it's just to say, I'm not at all unsympathetic to McFall as, you know, young idealistic guy who gets into Russian studies and just wants Russia and the US to get along. Like I, yeah, I, 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 I relate I that that's very much. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Well, and it's, it's also, well, where does he go from as a college student? Uh, I guess he... Well, so, so in his case, he's studying abroad in the Soviet Union in its, in its last decade um, when the system is, is you know, visibly crumbling. Um, he's meeting, you know, dissidents and young idealistic Russians who just want, you know, blue jeans and rock and roll and all that. Um, he, he's seeing it. He, he, I think he says in his book, which, which I was reviewing from Cold War to Hot Peace, which is a kind of memoir of his, his 30 years in, in the Russia business, um, written, written during the Trump administration, um, that, um, you know, he, I think it was on his second trip that he went from being like, we need to, he wasn't a communist ever, but I think he wanted to kind of understand and, and you know, a communism on its own terms, you know, that kind of thing. And I think he came back and became convinced communism was, you know, failing and incompatible with liberal democracy, which certainly in the late Soviet period, there's a strong case to be made. And he got very involved in, um, you know, kind of at the moment of the collapse and in the early 90s with the kind of pro-democracy civil society advocacy that in many cases, with like the National Democratic Institute and stuff has, you know, um, works as a kind of para-US government, um, organization um, advocating for kind of US style democracy in countries around the world. And he was doing that in Russia in the nineties. And he's of, of a generation that I think got filled with end of history idealism. You know, they, they watched the Berlin wall fall and they watched all these um, countries democratize. And they also, for that matter, watched, you know, like apartheid end in South Africa and all this stuff. And th there was a real belief like, Oh, like, we can move past the Cold War, we can move past, you know, the 20th century, and we can kind of, um, you know, embrace our, our, our happy golden arches, uh, you know, democratic moment. And, um, 
And, and McFall is just totally of that by the time he, his career kind of hits its stride in the 90s. And he, he becomes, you know, a kind of leading Russia expert. Um, and he ends up becoming candidate Obama and then first term President Obama's like main Russia guy mm-hmm. um, who, you know, is, is kind of, I, and I would describe his views as largely in line with like the Washington consensus, but also on a very kind of optimistic and idealistic side compared to some in his cohort who became um, Russia hawks earlier uh, and became very concerned about Putin. I mean, he was concerned about Putin, but his advice to Obama was basically like, look, with Medvedev, who was um, for four years from, I think it's, uh, what is it, 2008 to 12, um, Putin obeying the letter of Russia's constitution after he had served for two terms, two, two four-year terms as president, stepped down so that um, someone else could be president and that someone else was a kind of, um, you know, relatively warm and genial Western seeming guy who liked, you know, hamburgers and, and um, deep purple or whatever, um, named Dmitry Medvedev. I'm just gonna pronounce it like an American would to, for clarity's sake here, um, who, uh, I don't know, I'll probably end up going back and forth between the Russian and, and English pronunciation, but whatever. Um, who, who basically was a placeholder president for Putin for four years, during which Putin was prime minister. And there was a lot of speculation in, in the West about, well, is Putin really the puppet master or, or is he actually stepping back and creating an opening for Russia to kind of transition to some sort of reform? I mean, in hindsight, very obviously, Putin was the puppet master, uh, but those were genuine debates at the time. And McFall saw an opening and convinced Obama and Hillary Clinton and others to see an opening where if we, you know, if the US meets with Medvedev and and kind of cultivates um, uh, a friendly relationship with him through this policy called the reset, um, we could get past kind of Bushier attentions over Iraq, over um, the orange revolution in Ukraine, uh, over the Rose revolution in Georgia and the war between Russia and Georgia that took place in Bush's final months in office um, and NATO expansion and pulling out of the anti-ballistic missile uh, treaty and all this other stuff uh, that had kind of soured relations between the US and Russia. Um, you know, McFall basically thought if he did a charm offensive, um, we, we could reset and, and the US and Russia could get on the right foot again. And, uh, you know, I was, um, you know, interning at think tanks in DC and, and following all this stuff at the time. And I mean, I must admit, I was cautiously, I mean, I, I, I don't think I was naive. Maybe I was naive, but I, I wanted that stuff to work. I was pro reset. Like, yeah, no, uh, no, I, I, I mean, I don't think it was like, uh, you know, even though it didn't work, I mean, I don't think one should dismiss it out of hand. And I also, you know, shared that sort of cautious optimism that I, I, I mean, I always thought like, you know, one has to make an effort to kind of reach out to uh, to Russia. Um, but I mean, like reading your profile and thinking more about the trajectory of all this, I think that in some ways, McFall's optimism, um, uh, excessive optimism came from a place of overvaluing cultural exchange um, and the cultural sharing and not 
paying enough attention to sort of geopolitical realities. And yeah. I think that, I mean, you, you, what you had said earlier about the 1980s moment and 90s moment is exactly key on. There was an element of um, American thought that believed, and not without reason, it was not a totally foolish belief, that it was American popular culture that won the war. It was yeah. sort of like Elvis and the Beatles uh, and Michael Jackson and Blue Jeans um, and the desire to Always join. Blue Jeans, always Blue Jeans. They, they, they come up in every every single, I mean, not without reason, but they've become almost a cliche. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but the, this sort of, a, you know, like American consumer cornucopia is what made the Russians realize, hey, you know, this command economy thing ain't working out for us. We got to do something different. Uh, and there's, there's like some truth to that. I mean, um, I, I don't want to like kind of dismiss it like out of hand, but um, that like doesn't take the place of one can have, and you know, like the the classic formulation of this is Tom Friedman of, you know, the sort of globalist optimist of, you know, like no two nations with McDonald's like have ever fought a war with each other. Uh, and so if Russia gets McDonald's and Pepsi, they're not gonna like wage war. And uh, I just bring that up because I think uh, just over the last few weeks, uh, McDonald's has closed down in Russia, which can either be seen as a vindication or or final nail in the coffin of the Friedman thesis. I don't know how you want to take it, but but I do think that there's a, there is a kind of school of American thought um, that uh, 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 that really like emphasizes the value of you know like American culture as winning people over. Um, and McFall is very much that. He's he's a rock and roll guy, right? He's like you know yeah uh, the. Um, the problem I, I think I think with that thought is that like it's ignoring the fact you know like Russia like other all other countries has an elite that elite is very concerned about sort of geopolitics and that elite experienced the sort of 1980s 1990s moment not as a liberation and we're getting blue jeans but as a humiliation of Russia's place in the world and there's a way in which the very people that were pushing this globalization agenda really wanted to you know rub it in Russia's face or we're totally dis disregarding that geo these geopolitical concerns. And um, a, a quote from Bill Clinton from 1996 sort of popped up. And I mean, I wanna give a fair context for this because this is actually Clinton showing some sort of remorse or consideration, but it is actually very revealing. He's talking to, you know, Storm uh, Talbot, who's like a major figure in arms control in negotiations in 1996. And he says, we keep telling old Boris Yeltsin, okay, now here's what you have to do next. Here's some more shit for your face. Uh, and so, 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 I mean, like, you know, Bill Clinton in his sort of, you know, belovedly crude uh, uh, way, um, you know, like, God, I mean, the, the I'm saying what you will about Bill Clinton, and I've said it all, but the man understands being a politician and the yeah. mindset and, 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 and the circumstances a politician finds themselves under. And he and, he and Yeltsin had a, a rapport, but I think he also understood like, oh, like we're just turning Yeltsin and we're making him politically radioactive. They did it anyway. But yeah. I think Clinton was smart enough to understand that. And yeah, yeah. I, and so, so, so there was a, yeah, throughout the 90s, like, you know, like a real, uh, especially in the 1990s, you know, a real kind of constant humiliation. And all this stuff is kind of like justified you know, on some policy ground, like one can say, I mean, I think the whole issue of Yugoslavia and Kosovo, very complex, you know, 
and I wouldn't necessarily know, have known what to do. There's like obviously humanitarian concerns uh, uh, behind the US intervention, but it's also was done in a way of maximum humiliation for Russia and disregard for like, and no real attempt to bring, try to bring Russia in to the final um, uh, negotiations. And the same with sort of NATO expansion uh, and the same with um, uh, the, the sort of shock therapy. Uh, and so, 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 I mean, right. as, as an aside, if we, you know, if we're going to, as a pop cultural aside, I'm guessing you'll appreciate, I was in a bar recently where they tend to play movies in the background and the movie they were playing, um, this was like in the first week of the invasion and it seemed highly appropriate to the moment, um, was, was Air Force One, uh, 1997 Harrison Ford action movie, which I remember seeing in theaters as a 13 year old, it was a blast. I've seen it since. Uh, I'm sure you've, you've probably seen it too, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, and Air Force One is actually a great and relevant cultural artifact. I mean, it came out in the Clinton years. It came out, you know, two years before um, the Kosovo War, but, you know, in the middle of all this stuff with Yeltsin. And the kind of geopolitical, I mean, it's a fictional president and so on, but the kind of geopolitical premise of the movie is... Um, the Cold War is over. America stands rightly triumphant because it's a beacon of, you know, democracy, but also kick-ass values. You know, our president is like a is a is a soldier, but like a good soldier. But meanwhile, Russia or maybe it's Kazakhstan or whatever. But but whatever, like Gary Oldman playing the like Kazakh Russian terrorist villain who takes over Air Force One has this great like monologue in it. I think he's addressing the president's wife and daughter where, you know, he, he says like you Americans, you think you're, you know, so good and righteous, but you've devastated my country. You know, you've taken a great country and turned us into like, you know, um, beggars and prostitutes and whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm heavily paraphrasing, but basically like this movie, although it ultimately comes out on the side that America are in fact, the good guys and Russians are insane terrorists does give this little moment of, of recognition that of the total, abject humiliation that the the former soviet countries and that were russians in them felt in in the 90s that i think is actually and goldeneye also um you get glimpses of this too of just the like sat uh, which came out in 95 i think of just this like very i actually wrote a piece for this outlet called coda story a few years ago that was all about the sort of multi-decade evolution of hollywood portrayals of, of russians um, and and I, I focused on like the 90s as, you know, Russia as broken and humiliated and America just kind of and Britain kind of laughing at it um, and looking down on it. And, and I think it is really important to understand that moment, to understand how, you know, why Putin is the way he is now and why. Yeah, I know. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I think and not just Putin. I mean, I, 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 I want to I mean, in our last discussion, we did emphasize, you know, Putin's personal culpability, but. I don't think like any ruler ever rules alone. There was an entire cohort and class of you know Russian political figures um, that that experienced all this. And it's not an accident that Putin is the one who rose to power because he articulated you know some of um, this anger and anxiety over that humiliation. And so, I, and to go back to McFall, I mean, like I do feel like in a lot of his comments, you know, like there's both the uh, you know, optimistic, like, you know, Russians, they're just folks, they can be just like us. They love hamburgers, they love the rock and roll folks. And, but also like a real disregard 
for like, well, why are they mad that Estonia is joining NATO? And like, it, it, or, or or never mind the geopolitical stuff, like shock therapy. He like, I mean, I think his view, and it's not an uncommon view of, of that era, is he really glosses over like the economic catastrophe that that the West helped inflict on Russia, which to my mind is like, I wish, I wish the left right now, and some people are, but I wish the left was more focused on that and less focused on NATO expansion. Mm -hmm. I think NATO expansion is important, but I actually think if you really want to like stick it to the US for, for this, you know, and you want to go back to the 90s and do that, like the real focus should be on, on, on this, you know, disastrous experiment with neoliberalism. But if you read McFall's book, you know, his view is the shock therapist didn't go far enough. I mean, he literally says that, but also he just really glosses over the human cost of it. He's just like, I think the attitude is basically, look, the Soviet system was so bad and it was never going to be easy to get out of that system. And whatever, you know, the whatever medicine the West was prescribing was good and righteous. And um, if, if Russia, you know, ended up vomiting it up and and in, in the form of Putin, well, that's Russia's fault. That's definitely not our fault. And, you know, that's, I, I mean, I, that's my own creative way of describing it. But like, that's basically how he looked at it, um, just in the last few years, how he looks at it. And um, I, I think that's not uncommon for his for his uh, era and, and set. I think they were so triumphalist about Western liberal democracy. And I think his political science analysis of Russia and sort of comparatively worldwide is basically liberal democracies are good. Um, autocracies and command economies are bad. Um, if you're being a liberal democracy, that means you're being good. If you're if you're resisting being one, that means you're bad, which, you know, sure, on some level, fine. But like, it's an incredibly simplistic way to look at, you know, the world and to look at a country's development and it totally misses. I mean, he basically seems to be continually shocked that not just Putin or Russian political elites, but millions of ordinary Russians. I mean, he's always very focused on the like young idealistic students who came to the embassy when he was working there, or he would meet in exchanges, like you mentioned. But like, that's a self-selected group of people who are saying the things he wants to hear. Or he's always very excited about Russians who tweeted nice things at him. But you know, there's also all the Russians tweeting mean things at him, and he he can't he he can never process you know, decades of familiarity with the country. And unlike some Russia experts, he does actually speak the language, and you know he speaks it with a his corny American accent. But he speaks it basically fluently. I mean, I, I'm I'm not one to talk. I think he's at his best. He spoke it better than I ever did at my best. Um, and you know, so he he he's earnest about these person to person. Uh, interactions, um, but he, um, you know, he 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 doesn't. He just sees what he wants to see in the country, and when it disappoints him on the scale that it has under Putin, um, you know, he he really overcompensates by you know calling for all kinds of um, coercive measures that even a lot of people like, I mean, it's, it's bizarre that like Tom Nichols, for instance, Radio Free Tom, not someone I'm a fan of, someone, you know, a kind of a never Trumper, neoconservative-ish persuasion, um, incredibly irritating character on Twitter himself. Um, but even Radio Free Tom, 
the one thing he's an expert in is is like nuclear strategy. He's a genuine actor. He's always talking about we have to listen to the experts and then saying all this like wildly ignorant stuff. But the one thing that he actually is an expert on is nuclear policy. And he understands perfectly well why a no-fly zone is a terrible idea. But meanwhile, McFall is calling for it every day um, because he he can't like, you know, follow the most basic arguments about how, how people think. And, um, you know. Well, I, I, think, I think that's exactly right. And it is a sort of, it's the anger of the spurned lover, you know? It's, yeah. There's no like anger that one has as much as like when you want someone to love you and it turns out that they don't. Um, and it, I mean, to bring a broader historical analogy, I just like um, thinking about all this, like I was really reminded of the evolution of America's attitude towards, towards China in the early 20th century that, you know, America had a romance of, with China in uh, the 20s and 30s and 40s uh, with, you know, like Pearl Buck writing, you know, best-selling novels about China and American missionaries going to China and, you know, China being seen as like, you know, the, a land that's ripe for to becoming Americanized and as the alternative to Japan and um, uh, American, even before Pearl Harbor, um, you know, American uh, uh, fighter pilots forming a corps and doing like military missions on behalf of China, you know, to, to help them against Japan. Um, and then after the war, you know, when China, uh, there's a communist revolution, um, uh, this group of people uh, really align themselves with, you know, the losers of that revolution, which became, you know, Formoso and then Taiwan, the sort of Chinese nationalists, and they had a huge like fury and anger at, you know, communist China, red China, because they felt betrayed, that they felt like they had put all their effort and energy into hoping and dreaming of a China that would become um, Americanized and would become America's like, you know, ally in the 20th century. And China had like rejected that. And a lot of the real psychosis of American foreign policy in the 50s and 60s came from these kind of, you know, China lovers turned into China hawks. Yeah. Uh, they, they, this was a real good analogy. Huh? It's a good analogy. I, I, I'm familiar with the broad history you're describing, but I never quite thought of it in those terms before. That's very, that's very smart. Yeah, so 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 I and so it seems like this is a similar trajectory that people like McFall and not just him, but had had real like hope and dream that Russia would become Americanized. And when Russia didn't become Americanized and remained Russia, and then insisted on its own, um, you know, geopolitical concerns and its own economic concerns uh, that were sometimes at odds with America, there's a real like you know like anger. And it, I think what you said earlier is absolutely right. This experience has broken their brains. It has like really made them like not think clearly. Um, and it, it, it is regrettable that this guy, you know, both held high positions in the past, is a top academic and is now like the, one of the go-to guys for like, you know, the liberal elite in like uh, uh, the uh, MSNBC sort to like go to for Russia advice. Um, though, though, though you'll note that he has not been tapped to serve in the Biden administration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and I think actually on that note, we should talk a little bit about um, uh, how the Obama administration worked out for him because I think that is a kind of missing chapter of the story, both of him and of US-Russia relations. Um, so as I said earlier, I, I, I 
um, went to an event and, and asked a question at, at an event in 2014, and there's a video somewhere. And I remember what I asked and he answered, and later he makes the same point in his book, which was published a few years later. Um, I basically asked, you know, in so many words, why, why did the reset fail? What was the moment when the reset failed? What do you blame for that? Because it's it, it, literally everyone agrees the reset failed, including McFaul. Um, and the moment he pinned it to uh, was the Libya intervention of 2011. Um, so the way this went down, basically, you know, the Arab Spring happens, Medvedev is still president. And um, and the reset is in full swing. And there have been a, a bunch of nice diplomatic meetings. There was a great burger joint in um, Arlington, Virginia. I'm not sure if it's still there, uh, but it was very good called Ray's Hell Burger. And um, there, were, there was this wonderful burger summit where Obama went there with Medvedev and they had, uh, they had burgers and the press loved it. And it was a whole thing. And Medvedev was gonna start a like Russian alternative to Silicon Valley on the edge of Moscow. These were, this was about as, as pleasant as relations have been. It was a brief and very superficial moment, but that was all McFaul making that happen. And, you know, Hillary Clinton being advised by McFaul. And then, um, uh, and this is before he's ambassador. Um, and then in 2011, uh, at the height of the Arab Spring, the US decides it's going to intervene uh, with a no-fly zone uh, and, and working with Britain and France to um, stop Gaddafi from, from suppressing uh, this, this uprising in Benghazi. Um, and uh, in the context of the reset, Medvedev was, um, persuaded by the US to abstain in the UN Security Council vote over this no-fly zone. Uh, so it was not vetoed. You know, Russia voted against um, the Kosovo intervention in 99. They voted against the Iraq war. Uh, they did not vote against this. They abstained. Um, and that was that was like a fruit of the reset, if you will. I mean, it was yeah. it was like we'd, we'd bought up enough goodwill with, with Medvedev to, to get him to abstain rather than, than vote no. Um, and he did so with the understanding that all we were doing, all we were doing, this is relevant to the current situation, was a no-fly zone. Um, we were not going to do regime change. Well, of course, regime change happened, um, and uh, Gaddafi was basically lynched, for lack of a better word. Um, and uh, and and Libya, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert by any means, but it's had a, a pretty um, violent and, and and unstable decade since not to excuse anything about Gaddafi. Um, but, you know, it should be noted Gaddafi was both, was not only a longstanding dictatorial strongman, albeit one who seemed to be losing his mind. Um, he was also someone who in the later Bush administration, um, the, the Bushes had managed to um, talk him into giving up WMD peacefully in exchange for some degree of normalization. So like, he was a dictator the U.S. had made a deal with, and now we were backing, you know, very violent regime change. Um, Putin hated this, and yeah. Putin had not been into the no-fly zone idea either, um, but had sort of, I guess, grudgingly let Medvedev abstain on that. But Putin's view, and I don't think it's a baseless one, um, and I'm, this isn't even a getting into the rights or wrongs of the Libya intervention itself, just however one feels about it as a geopolitical consideration, Putin's view is Russia did the US a huge favor in abstaining on the understanding this wouldn't be regime change and then regime change happened. This is yet another of the, the long string of examples of the US just saying, 
you know, screw you, we'll do whatever we want and we'll overthrow friendly dictatorial regimes. It's important to understand this. McFaul himself said, you know, someone look it up and find the exact video, but McFaul himself said that's the moment when Putin starts reasserting himself, um, when it's clear, if it wasn't before, that he's going to come back to the presidency, when Medvedev starts to get sidelined. Um, now, you know, who knows, maybe without the Libya intervention, all that stuff would have happened in some form anyway. And it's also highly germane. I think any Russia watcher will, will say that there were, you know, when Putin decided he was going to stand for the presidency again, there were giant mass protests of the kind of young urban rising middle class in Moscow and other cities. And those protests really freaked Putin out. And he took a much more overtly nationalist and authoritarian turn in the years since. And on the geopolitical front, Russia's decision to intervene directly in Syria um, and, you know, help Assad um, commit horrific war crimes that did succeed in keeping him in power was very much a response to Libya as well as Iraq. It's like you did this to Saddam, you did this to Gaddafi, you're not going to do it to Assad. He's our guy and we will, we will, you know, level entire cities to protect him. So under this understanding, like a lot of the past decade, I mean, you could tie so many things. You could tie um, the 2016 election interference, all of it like ground zero. I mean, it's a long chain of things, but like ground zero for a lot of it could be the Libyan intervention. And McFaul himself says that. And it's fascinating considering McFaul supported and continues in hindsight to support the Libyan intervention. And he also thought the US should do uh, airstrikes on Syria um, and supported regime change against Assad. And he also supports, and it's much more dangerous here since Russia is itself a nuclear power, a no-fly zone in Ukraine. He's been advocating for it along with more weapons to Ukraine daily. I think he advocated for it earlier this morning um, on Twitter, which is all to say, the, there's some cognitive dissonance here. This is a guy who um, believe, believed in the reset and also believes in the geopolitical stuff that he himself believes made the reset impossible, but he puts all of that on Putin. It just, there's, there's no responsibility for any of this sort of predictable consequences of his actions, um, even, even with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and the other thing is, having just poisoned the relationship and with Putin now back in power and mad and more anti-American than he had ever been before. That's the moment when Obama, who really gets let off the hook a lot in this narrative, I think Obama's the one who decided to trust this man, both as an advisor and then to send him to Moscow as ambassador, um, you know, after all of this, um, when he clearly should have and eventually did send someone more kind of like hard-headed to just you know, negotiate with the Russians. He sent McFaul and McFaul's, I believe, two years as ambassador during Obama's second term, total disaster. I mean, first of all, this guy is not a career diplomat. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a goofy, naive political scientist who then gets put not, and you know, we have a lot of ambassadors who are just like donors or whatever, but you send them to random small, you know, you send them to Luxembourg or something. You don't send them to Moscow. Moscow is a spot where you want a, a tough career diplomat. Uh, or, you know, who, who knows something about the intelligence services and military. And you don't, you don't send Michael McFaul, who decided he was going to go all in on, on, you know, kind of public person-to-person -person diplomacy. He was going to tweet a lot as ambassador. 
uh, off the cuff. It's definitely him. It's not his staff. Um, he was going to, he was going to make lots of appearances in, in speaking Russian and English. He was going to host students at the embassy all the time. And he was going to, you know, bluntly criticize Putin for doing things that, you know, were bad for Russian civil society. And he was empowered to do all this. And the Russians just made mincemeat of him. I mean, they, they, they clearly did not take him seriously. They saw him as a dupe, um, as, as, you know, a symbol of American arrogance and naivete. They were harassing him and his embassy staff constantly. I don't defend this. This is terrible, you know, breaches of diplomatic protocol. And I understand why they make him mad. But there is a level on which it's very funny just how ill-suited he was for this assignment and, and how the Russians just saw right through him. And I'll stop this little rant with, and this is the last time he's worked in government, by the way. He's been back in Stanford just kind of um, weighing in on Twitter and on TV ever, and writing a book ever since. But the last thing I want to say um, about his time as ambassador, because I think it really captures the essence of McFall. So, you know, the Russians were also waging disinformation campaigns against him on state TV and on social media. You know, they were, they were doing what they do. They were trolling hard. And there was a fake news item that said in Russian um, that McFall is a pedophile, which just to be clear, Michael McFall is many things. He is not a pedophile. That's a baseless. That's a very typical kind of Putin move, but, but yes. yeah. It's, 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 it's a sick low blow. It's, it's a terrible thing to do. What makes it funny is that, and what makes this such, such a quintessential Michael McFall thing is that he has given like, you know, presentations and lectures in the years since being ambassador where he talks about, you know, how he was mistreated by the Putin regime and all this. He's also been barred from traveling to Russia, which is a, you know, a big, obviously hurts him a lot given his, his background. Um, uh, you know, he's been put on like a Putin list. Um, but there is an actual photograph or video still you can find on the internet where Michael McFall is standing on a stage, you know, pun, you know, the, the sounding off as he does in front of a crowd. And behind him is the headline, Michael McFall is a pedophile from this Russian fake news. <laughs> and you would think, it's one thing to say Russians baselessly accused me of this, but you would think like anyone with just basic common sense would not stand in front of a photograph announcing of, of a headline announcing that they're a pedophile. But, you know, this is Michael McFall we're talking about and, and, and common sense does not really apply. And I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no I mean, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great story because it will illustrate, you know, the very sinister nature of Putin's regime. And I'll, like I'll mention like, you know, Putin does that a lot. Like, like that's a very common kind of accusation that he puts against his enemies. Um, and in that, in that sense, Putin is not dissimilar to, you know, sort of the QAnon uh, type thinking. Uh, uh, and so like a very sinister thing. But then this, you know, McFaul being so goofy and like unaware and, uh, uh, you know, like there's a way in which that Mr. Magoo aspect that I alluded to, you know, makes one, you know, a little bit like sympathetic. I, I thought in your Baffner piece, I just quote it because I, I think that's a good way to maybe end our discussion about McFall is, uh, you have this great discussion about, you know, like how as a very online person yourself, you're part of the very online community, uh, you have some sympathy for McFall and you say McFall is a prodigious name dropper, a bad habit I share, addicted to Twitter praise, ditto, 
full of himself, extremely same, and wildly inconsistent in his and how, in how he assesses his own abilities in Russian. Uh, and so, so there, I, I wrote in uh, Cyrillic Yatoja, which means me too. Me too. Um, admitting uh, that is also a problem I have. But. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, like, you know, fair enough. But I, I think you're right about the Obama point. The, 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 you know, there is a kind of failure. And in some ways, you know, the, um, the, some of these illusions are Obama's illusions. The, the ability of the, like sort of speech and rhetoric to uh, and then sort of cultural exchange to overcome other barriers, um, and, you know, combined with um, an obtuseness, uh, which he shared, Obama shared, I think, with previous presidents like Bush and Clinton, an obtuseness about how American actions are going to be seen by other powers and the predictable reactions that they could have. And I, I think for me, that that's the main thing. Like, you know, on each of these decisions, you could say, you know, like, fair enough. It's a hard, it's a, it's a, a tough world. You have to go one way or the other. Um, you know, on certainly on Kosovo, uh, uh, fair enough. NATO expansion, I'm not a fan, but you know, like I understand why Poland say wants to join NATO, but to do these and and Libya the same, to do these things without factoring in what the Russian response is going to be and what like you know, and this is beyond Putin. Like I think any Russian leader that has any national sense of you know uh, obligation and duty and pride would look uh with great hostility towards those things and the only way you can get away with this sort of behavior is now that peculiar 1990s triumphalism where you have a russian leader that is like drunk out of his mind 90 percent of the time and is willing to humiliate himself and you know take uh as bill clinton says you with about boris yeltsin you know will just put shit on his face you know like you're not going to get Boris Yeltsin all the time. In fact, you're much more likely to get a Putin, or if not a Putin, you know, you're going to get a similar figure. And I just don't think that the American foreign policy elite has considered, or you know, like, uh, and foreign policy commentators and pundits have just considered the the predictable consequences of American behavior. And I, that 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 that's where um, I think we're talking about just not not just Michael McFall, but there's a kind of larger uh, American blindness. And I, so I, that, that's where I, I kind of end, would want to end on him, unless you wanted to say anything else. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's been broadly my kind of progressive realist analysis, you know, that uh, honed by people like Bob Wright for, for a long time. Um, you know, I think there are limits to it. I think um, even a lot of people who feel that way when when, when Putin actually does roll into Ukraine with the tanks, I mean, it, at a certain point, it's just like, yeah, you're the aggressor. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. that, that history yeah, I mean, is what it is. It's a of where they are in the tank, but I, you know, I want to be a world in which diplomacy, like, you know, tries to preempt that, that, that ter the, the terrible situation we're in now. And absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I, I think sort of the more progressive realist approach and an approach that like of American foreign policy that doesn't just say we're all about hamburgers and blue jeans and rock and roll and people love us, but I actually, you know, thinks about the, um, you know, the real material concerns that other nations have 
and you know like what are the trade-offs that you have to make i, I just think you know we need more of that so i, I think we're in broad agreement um, well, and and actually the ultimate tragic disaster here is that you know as as a result of this whole chain of events you know culminating in this war and the and the western response which you know Putin was duly warned about um everything that McFall or even someone like me might have loved about you know seeing Russia integrated into the world and and being able to go to never mind McDonald's I mean in the last decade you could go to Shake Shack in Moscow you could go to Starbucks you could go to like fancy trendy art museums and and um you know hipster gentrifier malls and all that I mean you know feel however you want about any of these things but like that was the direction that certainly Moscow and kind of Russian elite society was going in, it's all gone overnight, basically. Yeah. It's it's destroyed. And um, so, you know, that's that's the upshot of uh of of 30 years of of blinkered Western policies. I mean, you put put it on Putin, and I will too, but you know, even Putin himself is kind of an upshot of, of Western policies. It's it is in, inaccurate, as some have suggested, to say that the West installed Putin in Russia. That's not what happened. Um, but there, there are still layers of cul culpability um, in the 90s that, that get us to Putin. And yeah, um, I think the West, you know, created the conditions where a figure like Putin was almost inevitable. And, and that was actually what the realist uh, school kind of predicted. Like, you know, like if you look at what people like George Keenan uh, and, you know, like people that, you know, like whose politics I don't share, but who have a very hard headed uh, uh, and uh, clear eyed view of the world. Uh, we're saying like, you know, the dangers of American policy in the 1990s was that it would lead to a revanchist nationalist Russia. And uh, I, I certainly think that, yeah, that's where we are. Um, but, uh, but, you know, like having closed out on all that, um, I think that uh, I want to just hit briefly on um, um, uh, something we talked about in our last podcast, which is the great profile you wrote uh, for Jewish Currents uh, about uh, the Russian oligarch, um, Roman uh, Abramovich, uh, who is kind of in the news for two, two reasons worth noting um, that kind of vindicate your piece. One of which is that the Israeli elite is kind of like going all out to try to make sure he's not sanctioned, is trying to give cover to this guy. And I think anyone who read your excellent article and, and listened to our previous podcast would understand why this is entirely predictable. Um, and this goes back to our conversation about McFall actually, that like, you know, the view that these people have, like, oh, you have democracy on one side and autocracy on the other, is kind of doesn't get at the fact that there is actually, you know, these Russian oligarchs who were created in large part by American policy in the 1990s uh, and who have their kind of tentacles throughout the West and who are this bridge between the West and the East and who are very powerful figures and who are very hard to touch. Um, for that reason. So I, I think is the, you know, Israeli defense of uh, Abramovich uh, vindicates your piece and uh, further. But there's one other thing I want to note, which is that, you know, you had this great profile. Uh, and then um, was it like a week later? Like uh, eight, eight, days later. Huh? eight days later, eight days later, the New York Times came up with, uh, you know, uh, another profile. Now, of course, you know, it doesn't take a genius to profile Roman Abranovich 
uh, at the uh, at this moment, um, and 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 their piece was excellent uh, as well, and you know added a lot to our understanding of Abramovich. Uh, I just wish I'm going to speak on your behalf. I wish that they had uh, given you a little bit more credit, and I think this is you know to talk about uh, blinkered things. This is a common New York Times pattern of you know like um, not always acknowledging people who have done the previous work. Yeah, so I, I, I have, first of all, thanks for all your kind words about my piece again, but, um, and, and for standing up for it. But um, I, I have actually some nuanced views about this and they're, they're still actually evolving over the last 24 hours because um, in, in part with conversations with a Times editor who I gather may have worked on that piece, who we had a very civil discussion in your mentions about this, and also with friends I, I have who work at the Times who weren't involved in this at all. It's a big organization, but, you know, just talk, and with journalists in general. The, the, I'm, I, I think there's a specific and interesting phenomenon for those of us who, who work in media and um, digital media um, to, to consider here about kind of... Um, differing ethics and norms around uh, credit. And because, and some of this is gonna be esoteric to people who don't work in media, but, but follow along anyway. Um, first of all, I think we should distinguish between um, writing a good, thorough, researched piece about a topic, profiling a person who doesn't wanna cooperate, which the Times and I both just did with Abramovich, and really breaking news. And my piece doesn't break a lot of news and neither does the Times piece. There are tidbits. There's original quotes from uh, different experts. We talked to different people. Uh, actually, amusingly enough, one person the Times talked to that I didn't even try to talk to uh, for that piece is Michael McFall, who is, who is quoted in there. So that's, that's one thing they got on me. They got, they got McFall. Um, but, uh, but like, you know, yeah, we get original quotes, but a piece like either of ours is mostly about organizing information that's already public to, you know, draw connections and tell a story that's compelling. And I think we both did a good job and I'm happy to say, because it's just chronologically true that I did my good job over a week before they did theirs. And the reason for that is, um, yeah, you don't have to be a genius to, to profile Abramovich right now. Um, but my friend Ben Judah actually had the brilliant idea to write about Abramovich for Jewish Currents almost a year ago, but then he couldn't do it. So it ended up getting passed to me and I was working on it for months um, and, and getting into his background, not knowing there was gonna be a, a war in Ukraine and that the sanctions issue was gonna become front and center. Um, and then I had a week once the war started in which to, you know, and every day during that week, I was thinking, is someone else going to do a big Abramovich piece before me? There were some smaller ones, um, including, I actually didn't see this one till after mine published, but the forward did a, a perfectly fine quick piece on Abramovich, but I think mine was much more in depth. JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic uh, Agency, which is a good just kind of mainstream Jewish news site, um, uh, a writer there named, uh, a reporter there named Asaf Shalev, who I've been talking to a lot, um, put out a great piece, not specifically about Abramovich, but about the Jewish oligarchs and their philanthropy generally that dropped two days before mine. Uh, and Abramovich is in there. And when that came out, I was like, oh God, like, you know, every day you're, you're like scrambling to get new quotes, new interviews, keep up with events. 
And, um, and every day you're like, I know other people are working on this. I know someone's going to get it. Um, and they're going to do the definitive Abramovich piece before me. We nailed the timing and we really nicely, I think, and I give my editors so much credit for this, um, wove together a bunch of new stuff about the war and the context around it with the work I've been doing for months to get a very kind of full portrait of Abramovich. Um, and I think we did that better than anyone had to that point. And we got a lot of wonderful feedback and I'm very happy we did. And then the Times did a piece that I think, although theirs obviously doesn't have as strong a Jewish angle as ours, and they made some different choices, like less about his relationship with Boris Berezovsky. Um, I had wanted to put that he's friends with Jared and Ivanka in my piece, and my editors didn't think that was uh, necessary. I had wanted to put um, that he was the governor of this province near Alaska called Chukotka, and my editors didn't care about that either. There's also stuff that I just didn't know that got into the Times piece that I thought was cool. All of that said, if you read the two pieces side by side, it's extremely obvious that they read mine, that some of the photo choices are very similar, um, transitions and framing and specific stuff. And there's no even allusion to or link to my piece anywhere in there. Now, how should I feel about that? And, and by the way, the editor that was in our comments um, in your, you know, that I interacted with said, I wrote a terrific piece, that was his word, and he definitely read it. <laughs> so I don't think there's any ambiguity that, you know, and as they should, I mean, when you're, as I know from just having done it myself, like when you're writing a piece trying to keep up with events and other people are writing about it too, you know, you're, you're doing like Google alerts and Twitter searches and seeing like what's coming out. And if you, you know, the way I did it and the way I think most writers of our cohort would do it when they're in a situation like this, writing for, you know, an online article like this is, so like I said, that JTA piece came out two days before mine. So I saw it, I freaked out, I read it. I said, okay, it's not redundant with mine. It doesn't do all the things mine does, um, but it also um, has some interesting stuff I didn't know and some quotes that are useful. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a quote from it, put it in mine, give JTA credit for getting the quote, link the article, and you know, no one is gonna accuse me of you know, plagiarism, of, of ripping off his framing of everything. They're gonna see that I gave credit. They're gonna see that I built on it, that I was keeping up to date with what everyone was saying. And that's how I did it. And, um, and, and it's not just the JTA one from two days before. My piece is littered with links to other people's reporting. Um, you know, I, I relied on several books for my piece and um, I credit the authors by name. Uh, so when you read several paragraphs about, you know, Berezovsky that, that are, you know, heavily influenced by David Hoffman's book, The Oligarchs, I have a quote from David Hoffman's book, The Oligarchs. So you can see, so David Hoffman can't say like, you know, oh, you, you, you're just cribbing from me. I'm making it clear that I am. That's how you do it. And the times, um, you know, I would say this is not just me and this is not just my piece and it's not paranoia at all. That like when when you and I tweeted about this, I mean, it's 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 a running cliche in the industry. The Times does this constantly on every topic in every section. They rip off local reporting from local blogs. They rip off, um, you know, uh, they'll they'll do a, a trend piece in the style section that is very similar to the one that someone did in a, a smaller outlet. Um, they rarely give credit. And 
the arguments that I'm seeing for why why it's different when the Times did it, because you know the Times dominates our industry. It's very easy to punch up at it. But one argument is, you know, a lot of what they write at the Times is written for print, and um, and it's written um, to be. You know, they call themselves the paper of record. It's written to be the record. And um, I think the way they see it, like both, you know, links obviously don't appear in print. You can put links on, on the website, but, um, but, but it has to be, you can't depend on people, like the links aren't part of the story in the same way. The story is not constructed around links the way all digital first writing is. Um, you know, or, or I'll give another example, actually. Um, a few days before my piece came out, the Washington Post had a piece about Abramovich and it included in its lead this wonderful detail of him getting on his private jet in, in Monte Carlo to fly to Moscow. Um, and I read that and I was like, oh, that's gotta go in my piece. And when I described it, I linked the Washington Post article. In this case, I didn't name the Washington Post, but I linked the article because that's where I got it from. So there should be a link there. Um, and I was actually a little hesitant about making that my lead. Um, and my editors decided that was okay. Um, you know, because I didn't want it to seem like I just ripped off the post piece. But, you know, this is how this works. And the Times doesn't do this in the same way. And they don't, as, as a Times person I know mentioned, they, they don't, um, uh, you know, they're not going to write in the body of their articles, like as a, as a, you know, thorough profile by David Cleon and Jewish Current said, yada, 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 that they're just going to do it. You know, and and I'll leave it to readers and media professionals to discuss whether there's anything wrong with that or not. I mean, I am at the end of the day proud of my piece. Everyone knows it came out first, flattered that they read me and not going to start a big fight over this. And it's certainly not plagiarism, whatever else it is. Um, but it's an, you know, it's an industry hazard. And if things had gone a little differently in the editorial process, their piece might have come out before mine. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a pretty fair kind of assessment. Um, I, I will say, I mean, I do think that th this habit comes from the uh, the Times model, which is an earlier, it's, it is a pre-digital model of being the paper of record. Um, and in some ways, there's a whole class of people who think that something is not true or real until it's reported in the New York Times. And yeah. <laughs> in that sense, like uh, the, it's not just that it's, uh, anything that's in the Times is breaking news for that reason. Uh, I will also say, I'm glad you made the differentiation between, you know, these are both two kind of synthetic profiles of taking information out in the world and organizing it, which is a very important thing. Yeah. I think where this becomes a little bit more dicey and there are cases where people are like, you know, do, writing for say the American Prospect or other places and breaking news in those places. And then, you know, similar stories pop up a few weeks or months later in the Times. Yeah. The Times is very good about crediting. Well, I don't know if they're very good. The Times has developed a norm where they will credit major scoops by the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal or publications they consider their peers. Um, which are not many, but when 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 a news organization they consider a peer gets you know um, the Pentagon Papers or whatever before them, um, the the Times will give credit. But that's a scoop, and it's not like it's not like either I or the New York Times discovered um, that uh, 
uh, Abramovich has given over $100 million to this right-wing Israeli settler group, Elad. It was the BBC that discovered that in um, 2020. And I believe, though I'd have to double check, I know I did, I think they did. You know, there we give credit. A BBC investigation uncovered something that wasn't known before. Um, but I, I don't, I understand, I didn't invent the idea of, I mean, even at Jewish Currents, I didn't invent the idea of um, investigating, uh, you know, Roman Abramovich and his global footprint in the Jewish world or anywhere else. And I don't hold a patent on it. And um, at the end of the day, all I can do is say, uh, I think I did a really good job of presenting the information there is about him. And I think the Times did too, but I did it first. <laughs> no, no, that's right. That's right. Yeah, but uh, I, I, the only thing I wanted to underscore is, is I do think that there's uh, cases where it is more. I wouldn't use necessarily use the word plagiarism, but the Times does in fact kind of like steal people's uh, yeah. scoops or present people's scoops as if they were their own. And it is exactly, and it does feel really bad because they wouldn't do that to the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, which both. Um, are they see as peers and which have the power to fight back, right? Which can like, you know, like really complain in a loud way and make the times look bad, but they will do that for like smaller journals um, and for people who are doing local reporting. And it, it is a, a function of the Times' outside position and the political economy of journalism where the Times is the kind of like the mothership that is yeah. like, you know, the picking up all these other little satellites. And in some ways that's a very destructive thing because, you know, like, if it um, it could if if everybody uh, and it's not just in the United States people all of the United States that subscribe to the Times and don't subscribe to local papers and not just the United States there are people a lot of people in Canada subscribe to the Times and they've beefed up, beefed up their Canadian coverage uh, and I don't necessarily know how I feel about that uh, and would be even more concerned if the Times is kind of like you know taking scoops from Canadian reporters and repackaging it as their own. Uh, there's a whole issue of the sort of political economy of journalism that's tied up with this. But I, I think your assessment of, of your own situation, I, I think is very magnanimous, let us say. I'm a classy guy, as everybody knows. <laughs> you're a classy guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're gonna, you know, you're, you're above, uh, you're above uh, uh, noticing uh, their little shenanigans. Uh, yeah. anyway, <laughs> I will, uh, so I, I think such internet pettiness is beneath me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I will just. Um, uh, so I, I think I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I, th I think it all ties in together. Uh, I want to thank uh, thank you once again for uh, being here, uh, uh, and would encourage, and I'll link to them. Encourage uh, reading both of uh, David's pieces if you haven't. Um, uh, they're excellent. Thank you, G. Always a pleasure.